everyone. Welcome to NKBA Live. I'm Bill Darcy, and it's wonderful to be back with you today for Brave New Business. We hope you and your families and colleagues are well and trying your best to enjoy this most unique summer and staying safe while doing so. As we all know, the pandemic has impacted the living situations of many people as well as their financial situations. And while there's still quite a bit of uncertainty surrounding the economy, today we're going to discuss a particular aspect in this environment, discretionary spending and the luxury market and its prospects for the future. We have reasons for some optimism for the high-end market. First, Americans' personal savings rates hit a historic 33% in April, according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. A recent CNBC poll showed 48% of boomers have reduced spending by up to up as, 500, as much as $500 a month. NKBA research shows that more than 70% of homeowners pay for remodeling projects out of their savings. So more savings could equate to good prospects for remodeling and for higher end choices. Second, mortgage rates, as we know, are at historic lows, falling below 3% for the first time and this is resulting in some activity in purchases of vacation homes and city dwellers moving to less densely populated suburbs. Both are good signs for remodeling. Low rates also mean more opportunity for refinancing or home equity loans that could be destined for home improvement projects. Today, two experts on the luxury market will help us dive into the prospects for this area, as well as what's happening with consumer spending habits. We'll also discuss an important shift in marketing strategies, and that is appealing to the many consumers who are more and more concerned about the way a brand will help people, the planet, and each other. It's not just about buying something for personal satisfaction, it's also about how the brand is benefiting others. Just a quick note before we get started, this forum qualifies for one half CEU credit for our certified members, and we'll have time for some questions at the end. Please type those in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, not the chat, please. I'd also like to thank past 30 Under 30 honoree Nina Green for the use of her beautiful design you see behind me today. Speaking of 30 Under 30, nominations for the class of 2021 are open through August 4th, so please visit nkba.org to nominate an outstanding young professional for this prestigious program. So now I'd like to welcome Jay Walker-Smith, PhD, Chief Knowledge Officer for Brand and Marketing with Cantar Consulting, and congratulate you for being honored as the 2020 recipient of the Charles Coolidge Parliament Award, the oldest and most prestigious lifetime achievement award in marketing and marketing research. This award recognizes outstanding contributions to the field of marketing. You've been described by Fortune as one of America's leading analysts on consumer trends. So big congratulations and thank you, Walker, for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, I appreciate it. We are also delighted to welcome Pam Danzinger, award-winning author, researcher, and speaker, expert on retail, the luxury market, and the affluent consumer segment. Pam, you're the author of several books, including one on consumer segment for high earners, not rich yet, called Meet the Henrys, the Millennials that Matter Most for Luxury Brands. We'll be talking about them today as well. So we'll talk to Walker and Pam about the luxury market, where consumer spending is shifting, and how to maximize the sale in high-end remodeling. So let's get started. First, let's define some terms, Pam. Uh, how do we define discretionary spending, necessity spending, and what's the difference between them and, and why is this important now? Yes, well, th thanks, Bill. You know, the 
my first book was called was titled why people buy things they don't need and i think that in a nutshell explains the difference necessity spending are things that we need to live our lives to live discretionary spending you might you know say is all the extras in life that make it worth living so discretion is the wants and desires that consumers have but it's interesting there's no clear cut difference between the two because there's an awful lot of discretion that goes into making necessity purchases for example i mean we need toilet paper so we buy you go to the store and see the generic brand of toilet paper the store brand but what we really want is the charmin or a more you know national brand we may need a new pair of sneakers but what we want is a new pair of Nike's or Adidas. So discretionary spending is so important for the NKBA members because some of what you sell is necessities, but much more of what you're selling is discretionary in nature. And that's where you're gonna make your money, getting people to trade up to more premium, more discretionary um, items. And then luxury, is at the very top, the very pinnacle of the most discretionary of all discretionary purchases. So that's why luxury is also very important to NKBA members. That's very interesting. So what about these mass affluent Henry's, higher earners, not rich yet consumers, which some people call aspirational? Right. Well, you know, as I've been working in the luxury field for, for quite a while now, and we all hear that term, aspirational consumers. But for me, I push back against that term. I just think it applies. Aspiration is a motivation, but there's really no way of how do you measure it. My aspiration is different than your aspiration. It's like it's, it's just a fuzzy term that really no meaning. So I looked around to quantify the this this aspirational consumer which many people also call the mass affluent and trying to quantify them and found the definition called the henry's the high earners not rich yet and they're defined demographically by income henry's basically are doing better than like 75 percent of all u.s households and but they're one rung below the ultra affluence who are at the top five percent so Henry's are in that middle range between middle income and the truly affluent, who are the traditional targets to luxury brands and many of the NKBA members, uh, primary customers today. If we could put up slide one, please. So if we're talking demographically, Henry's are people with incomes from $100,000 to about $250,000. They make up 21% of the whole of the entire US households, but collectively account for about 36% of all consumer spending. At the top level, the top 5% of consumers, um, they, they make up 5% of households, but account for only about 10% of total spending. The difference, why are Henry's so powerful and so important, is because there are 28 million Henry households versus 6.5 million ultra-affluents. And as you can see, when we, when we split up the spending, the Henry's are the biggest and most uh, high-powered whole segment in the consumer market. So why are Henry so important to the NKBA members? The fact is virtually everyone who 
reaches ultra affluent levels of income starts out their process as a Henry. Henrys um, don't start their careers or people don't start their careers making $250,000 coming out of, of college or grad school. They, they start out at a Henry level and then go through that. So it's important to make an early connection with young Henrys because that's your long-term prospective best target clients. Um, you know, the ultra affluence are going to be the the Henrys are going to be the ultra affluence of the future. Now, not all Henrys reach ultra affluent levels of income, but virtually all ultra affluent start their their career process, their income, at Henry levels. Interesting. So, Walker, um, can you tell us about uh, what are the general parameters of the luxury consumer, and has COVID uh, changed the attitudes or behaviors at all? Well, I think Pam did a very good job of, of outlining the dynamics and some of the dimensions of this so-called true luxury consumer. Uh, she refers to it really as the ultra-affluent consumer and a lot of the aspirational Henrys. We use a slightly different language at Cantar, but it, it overlaps it uh, very closely. We kind of think of these uh, ultra-affluents as consumers who live off their balance sheet. They kind of think in terms of how much they're worth. At the very opposite end of the spectrum are downscale consumers uh, who live more um, from uncertain pay event to uncertain pay event. And they kind of look to see what's in their wallet right now when they think about how to spend. So when you're looking at a luxury consumer, you're really looking at people who have the ability to kind of take a step back and assess some of this discretionary spending from a more secure position. They have the reserves, to kind of use the word we use at Cantor, to make those kinds of decisions. So now you look at COVID and you see how has this crisis really affected these kinds of extremes and then folks in the middle, which include a lot of these uh, Henrys that Pam described. Again, at the upper end, you have a lot of people who have been able to uh, live in this crisis by self-isolating. And so the trick to engaging with them is all about their avoidance of ways of being exposed to these kinds of risk. Anything that involves high engagement, they've pulled themselves out of. So for example, high-end restaurant spending has suffered, and a lot of that has been due to these kinds of consumers avoiding this kind of exposure in the marketplace. At the other end, it's a very different proposition. These are consumers who can't avoid exposure, so they um, are trying to protect themselves. And they're looking for safety measures that can enable them to uh, avoid uh, any kind of the consequences of exposure to this disease. So I, I think when you think about the luxury consumer, it is this person who can fall back on their reserves, who has more freedom of activity uh, because of these financial reserves and who is now engaging in a lot of avoidance behaviors in order to minimize their exposure. And it's this avoidance behavior that then translates into the ways in which they're engaged in the luxury market. Interesting. So we know things, you know, uh, some of the usual repositories for some of this discretionary spending, like exotic travel to faraway places, not happening, right? So where is the consumer spend shifting and, and has the opportunity for luxury brands changed at all? 
Well, it has changed. Uh, it's, it's had some category changes, so that does pose some uh, difficulties for a lot of brands that are, you know, do business in a focused way in certain kind of categories. You mentioned uh, luxury travel, but, you know, people still are looking for escapism. So this luxury right. consumer that's engaged in avoidance, which is why luxury travel is kind of off the table for them at the moment, is still looking for that kind of escapist experience. And so how do you find that? And you do see things uh, that have some opportunities in this marketplace uh, that don't suffer from this kind of lack of engagement. So things related to home, things related to technology, things related to entertainment, particularly video entertainment, things related to cooking, uh, in-home services that people can get, you know, like a, a Peloton bike, as opposed to going out to a gym or some other place that people are trying to avoid. So there has been some shifting, but again, I think the way to try and understand that is in terms of this ability of the luxury consumer to sell isolate and that as an avoidance behavior is now dictating how they're engaged in the marketplace. Yeah, that's great, great points. Um, Pam, back to you. In, in the time of national crisis when conspicuous consumption might be frowned upon, how can luxury brands connect with consumers and what values do they need to bring as part of their proposition? Right. Well, what we really want to do is we want to encourage our customers and our clients to trade up and spend more of their discretionary dollars on more premium and higher priced offerings. So that's our goal. Um, and that's really the function of marketing and branding um, ourselves and our businesses. You know, when, when we think about, you know, business and we think about consumers, the fact is our customers' perception is our business reality. And marketing and branding is how we shape and mold and, and you know, ultimately manipulate that consumer perception. We've got to understand the values and motivations of our clients today and where they are. And we've got to make sure that our values and our promises that we, that we promise to deliver to our clients and what we ultimately deliver to our clients matches those values per, per, perfectly. When I look at the luxury market, and it's you know there's a lot of lot of books about how to market luxury. So many of the traditional luxury brand value propositions have have assumed negative connotations, like conspicuous consu consumption. I mean, if you're wearing a bold logo brand, you know branded logo on your clothes or on your handbag, it can brand you as an elitist or a one percenter. And in this, you know, hot button issue today is income inequality. You don't want to be associated with that. So, you know, the fact is people will trade up to luxury brands and more expensive purchases if the, a really meaningful value is there. So they may not want a prominent logo, but they do want the value of luxury that that is promised as long lasting quality, superb workmanship, handcrafting, and superior materials that are used in, that are inherent in, in luxury brands. So our job is to educate our clients about the values that they're gonna get for paying a premium price. They, want, they will spend more if they get more value. And you know, they, nobody wants to spend 10 times more for a luxury brand uh, and get something that's basically only a little bit better than something that costs 10 times less. Now the affluence, including the Henrys, will pay more for something, 
but only if the value is there. I recently wrote an article um, and researched the Heston's Mattress Company, which sell mattresses that start at $10,000 and go up to about a quarter of a million dollars. And I think that Heston's is an excellent case study for anybody wanting to really understand how to position your brand around exceptional value and inherent quality. And I, so go to their website, you can see my article. Once you make the case of value, the price ultimately becomes secondary and for the right customer, it, it may not even be an issue at all. And, you know, so Walker, I, I mean, Pam talked about some of this already about consumer expectations of product and, and brand experience. Can you talk about a little bit more about how expectations are shifting and how this is impacting the luxury market in your perspective? Yeah, we see uh, the future of the marketplace um, pivoting into kind of a new era. So, you know, the short version of the long history is at the very beginning of the 20th century, it was really all about the product. Uh, the kind of material abundance we enjoy today didn't exist. People were looking really to accumulate things for a better lifestyle. You get to the end of the 20th century and we've now taken product for granted and we're doing much more to try and sell to the person. So we're personalizing things. We're talking about the person, not necessarily the product itself. We now get into the 21st century and we're taking for granted a product that is well suited for a person and instead we're looking for brands to deliver something more. We want them to contribute to society as well. And so we've moved into this kind of era of the public where the expectation is you better be a great brand that delivers all of those luxury dimensions, but at the same time, you better be making a contribution to a better society as well. And that will grow uh, as we look forward. And the, the pandemic, the protest, all of the issues around things like sustainability are, are really pushing brands in this direction. Thank you, thank you. That's good stuff. Uh, Pam, drawing on past consumer behavior after other downturns. Sorry, I'm not sure what that was. Uh, drawing on past consumer behavior after other downturns, what do we know about how consumers might react in the post-COVID world? How will their confidence level be affected and, and where are they spending money? Well, the good news for us is that affluent customers and our, our clients are more immune to all this economic turbulence. But their consumer confidence can and is shaken just as much as anybody else's. And consumer confidence is what gives people permission to spend. Now, for the, immediate, for the future, I foresee a, a, a lot more spending coming for the home market. Number one, because people have been spending so much time at home, and I think we're, because of that experience, we're seeing the shortfalls on how we decorated our, our kitchen equipment, everything. We want, we want it fresh and we want it new. We also have seen recently people have not been moving as much, so they're investing more in remodeling their own homes. So I see home renovation um, as, a, as a strong possibility. But on the other hand, with all the, the turbulence, with the, with the threat of infection more prominent in urban, crowded urban areas, I think we might be very well seeing people moving from urban areas after this pandemic um, to more suburban and rural areas. So I think that's something that we, we, can, we can anticipate. And as we know, buying new homes is really good for the uh, NKBA members. If I could have that second slide, um, 
I dug into the personal consumption, the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis puts this out every month, tracking where spending is. And for the first five months, I compared the change in spending with the change in spending from 2018 and 2019. I mean, the fact is personal consumption spending through May is down nearly 4%, which is basically you know, equal to the growth we saw throughout all of 2018 and into 19. We're also seeing this year in terms of home purchases, consumers are backing off purchases so far in furniture, decorative accessories, major home appliances, and home services related spending. On the other hand, we're seeing them picking up the pace in floor and flooring and floor coverings, window coverings, electronics and high tech for the home, and most notably, outdoor living items, which I think talks to Walker's uh, concept of escapism, because that, you know, outdoor living products are the patio furniture and our outdoor kitchen and all the other things that make our outdoor area into, into a new living room. So, you know, for designers, you might want to have your outdoor living designs prominent on your websites and in social media now, because that's what people are spending on. Interesting. We've had, um, Walker, we've had three very disruptive events since the turn of the 21st century. First, 9-11, then came the financial crisis, 07 to 09, and now pandemic. Uh, can you tell us about the differences among these events and what it took to reactivate the band? Yeah. Well, I might start by just very quickly saying some of the similarities between these events. So in the middle of disruptions, we always see that innovation succeeds. Uh, that big brands enjoy more advantages than smaller brands, and we don't see any real changes in uh, price perceptions. We do see some changes in the ability of people to afford things, but we don't see uh, kind of lasting, enduring changes in people's perceptions of price value. So we've seen those things consistently in past disruptions. I think we're gonna see that here now as well. But you know, 01 was an event that was more about fear than anything else, and so the job was to restore confidence. 08 was a liquidity crisis where there was a lot of pressure on the credit market mm -hmm. and loans, and so that was enabling people to afford things again, it was essentially opening up the credit markets. And now we have a demand problem. It started as a supply shock that's translated into a demand shock, and we're trying to get people out into the marketplace again to pick up the slack and demand. So we've got to uh, reassure people about their health and hygiene. So, you know, there are some lessons to be learned, but I think the tactical priorities of the moment are very specific to uh, what's been happening in recent months. All that you said, what about the long-term scarring effect on the generations that are coming of age, the future, I say future luxury customer, right. do you think, what, what impact will this have on the evolution of new luxury, you know, how, how will that become, um, what, what do you see in the future? Yeah, so uh, economists have looked at um, uh, the impact of past disruptions on consumer confidence and on people who are just coming of age and forming some expectations about the marketplace. What these disruptions tend to do from a psychological standpoint is cause people to overestimate the likelihood of some future black swan event like this occurring again, at least over the near term. You know, eventually people will go back to the way that they have thought before. But as a result, people become a little more cautious 
people become a little more reserved, they pull in just a little bit. And we've been telling our clients, this is what you've got to focus your attention on. You've got to communicate some confidence to consumers that they don't have to fear uh, the marketplace going forward. As long as these kinds of worries uh, predominate in consumer psychology, you're gonna see um, a, a, a slower growth in spending and economic opportunities. And, and frankly, the forecasts that economists have made from the scarring effects of this current pandemic are pretty scary, potentially as much as 10% over a five plus year period. Uh, and we really need to, as companies and businesses, kind of step in and try to take some responsibility for restoring some of these confidence uh, perceptions uh, before they really um, begin to affect uh, our future opportunities. So with that, what type of messages do companies need to send to, uh, to connect to the consumers, especially those who you know, have the means to choose and, and offset some of the negative effects of this particular disruption? Well, I think the first thing is to signal hygiene. So we have talked to a lot to our clients about just reassuring people that their health and safety uh, is secure as they engage with you in the marketplace. And particularly when it comes to the high-end consumer that's responsible for the luxury marketplace, they've already engaged in avoidance behaviors. And so the only way you get them back it was with reassurances about hygiene. If you want them to engage you've got to take those kinds of steps, take them aggressively and innovate uh, around hygiene. And then after that, uh, I think you've got to communicate that you're more flexible, that you can adapt to new needs, that you're responsive to some of the new perceptions. And finally, I think you've got to indicate that you're a brand with a conscience. You're a brand that is in tune with some of the big changes that are going on in the marketplace and the context of society around you. So I think those are some of the critical requirements for all companies uh, if we're going to uh, get back to where we want to be. Pam, so you know, yes. can you elaborate on what, what Walker said about what advice do you have for businesses in this climate? Uh, well, you know, as I say, I am very optimistic for the home sector um, coming out of this crisis. But, you know, we, it's going to be terribly challenging times, both for our clients um, over the next year, and it's going to be terribly challenging times for our businesses. You know, and so we're, we, of course, as business people, we have to conserve our cash. But for so many NKBA members, your business, you are personally the most important resource for your business. So I say you have to conserve your optimism and your spirit and not give up, but keep on pushing and maintain that positive attitude. You've got to believe in yourself, believe in your talent, and, and really believe in the life enhancing products and services that you provide your clients. And that's what made you what you are today and is going to take you into the future. So my advice, stay strong, stay positive. Once we get through this and come out the other side, I believe our products and services are going to be more important to our clients than ever before. And I suspect that many of them are going to realize how important that is. And because they're spent more time in their home and are going to be anticipating spending more time in their home. So we got to make that home a wonderful place to be. 
Uh, it's fantastic advice from both of you. Uh, just finally, Walker, before we go to questions uh, in the Q&A, do you think buying habits or business operations will change dramatically as we emerge from the crisis? And how, how could you counsel our viewers about your thoughts there? Well, we tell our clients a few things. One is you need to start operating in a reactive mode as, a, as opposed to a pre-planned mode. You know, generally we come up with business plans and then we execute on them for the course of a year. I think things are changing very rapidly now and we've got to get used to doing business in real time, at least for the next probably 18 months. The second thing is simplify, simplify, simplify. So don't overcomplicate. There are enough problems with logistics as it is. Uh, retail has become much more challenging. We certainly see retailers simplifying and manufacturers are gonna have to simplify their portfolios as well. Um, we uh, encourage our clients, uh, thirdly, to think in terms of value, not price. I mentioned earlier some of the things we've seen from past disruptions. And finally, we just say to them, you know, there are going to be some changes, but don't overestimate the amount of change that's going to happen as we come out of this. Every time we live through one of these disruptions, in the heat of the moment, it seems as if everything will be different in the future. And then we get past it and we look back on that and wonder what happened to all those New Year's resolutions we made during the worst part of that disruption. So don't overestimate the change, be a little more systematic. And we offer our clients a framework uh, to kind of think about this and some of the operative principles uh, that are at work. So interesting and such great advice from both of you. So let's go to, uh... Leanne, and, and see if we have some questions from the audience to ask. I actually think a lot of the questions were addressed, Bill. Um, we do have some comments, Walker. Everyone's intrigued if that's a record collection on your left-hand side, and there's a few questions about that. Everyone wants to know about that. But there is an interesting question about how much the internet and digital marketing affects that affluent market and luxury market. Could you comment on that, Walker? Good question. Yeah, sure. So yes, those are records. Since I'm going to answer a question about digital, that's uh, that's analog vinyl that you see behind me, which is just proof that I never throw anything away. So I, I still, uh, still have uh, for those. Um, digital is extremely important to all parts of the market. So it's not just uh, the affluent in, but I do think that uh, things that technology can do to enhance and add value to the experience are going to increasingly be an important part of the luxury market, and they are going to define some of the cutting edge part of the market. So virtual experiences, value added experiences, things that blur boundaries between analog and digital experiences, all of these things are innovation opportunities for companies to think more creatively about how you can add value to these kinds of spaces. And I, I think it will be critical going forward because again, as you think about the Henry's of today, as Pam said, they are millennials. They have grown up with very different expectations about their experiences in the marketplace than their baby boomer parents. And of course, we've designed for decades now for these baby boomers, and there's a generation coming behind them that has some very different perceptions about what constitutes luxury, and digital is at the heart of that. And that, unfortunately, is an opportunity that we just have not fully exploited yet, but it does create some future opportunities. And if I could add one other note, and it's to what you said, Walker, about that isolation among the affluent, we can use technology 
to come into their homes personally like we're doing now, but they're still isolated and safe. So I think there's also lots of application for this technology in the sales and in an interaction process too. Well, you know, this has been a wonderful discussion. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Jay Walker-Smith and Pam Danzinger for all their insight, marketing expertise. We truly appreciated having you uh, on BNB today. Next week, we will air a special rebroadcast of a terrific episode, Getting Back on the Job with Charles Silva, a president of Silva Brothers Construction, uh, designer developer John Culinary, and Angie Hicks, co-founder of Angie's List. Our next live broadcast of Brave New Business on August 6th features another installment of our deep dive into our living impacts design research, this time on the influence of healthy living on evolving kitchen and bath design. Our guests will be Lawrence Carr of Lawrence Carr Design and Shannon Jem of Shannon Jem Designs. We know this will be a great and very timely discussion. Please follow the NKBA and me on social media. Thanks again to everyone. Uh, stay well, and we'll see you next time.